Sis, it's Savvy Sabs, and I have a special guest with me today. Their names are Gavin and Zach, and they are hosts of the Vanguard podcast. Welcome, guys. How's it going? Thanks Good. So much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thanks for coming. So first thing I, I've got to know about you guys is how did you two meet, and why did you decide to start the Vanguard podcast? Ty, do you want to take the first half or the second half, Gavin? Well, I can talk about how Zach and I first met. Uh, we have a pretty long history going back a while. Um, back during the Obama election of 08, Zach and I were actually in elementary school at the time um, in uh, Overland Park, Kansas, which is where we grew up, suburb of Kansas City. And again, we were in elementary school together. I was already kind of uh, getting into politics. I guess we both were getting into politics. Um, my parents were Democratic voters, and, and I was excited about Obama. Uh, Zach's parents were on the other side of the aisle. Um, so he was, you know, kind of indoctrinated in the conservative ideology. And we would kind of go back and forth in, in school and in, in our classes about politics, I and mean, mostly just kind of regurgitating things we'd heard from our authority figures in our life, of course. But, but nonetheless, our, our relationship was kind of forged in that political discourse. And, and as, you know, we both got older, we both, uh, you know, evolved a lot politically. You know, Zach, of course, no longer um, buying into the conservative bullshit that his um, parents espoused probably. And, and, you know, me obviously becoming less and less of a Democrat and more and more of a socialist or a progressive, uh, kind of realizing the two-party corruption and how um, essentially neither, you know, establishment was going to really save us. Uh, and obviously the Bernie campaign had a lot to do with my evolution of that thinking. Um, but yeah, I would say that the first part of the story would just be elementary school, 08, uh, Zach, or I guess 07, partially probably. Yeah, fifth and uh, sixth arguing, grade, yeah. <clears throat> right, arguing about, you know, Obama v. McCain, um, which is such a throwback at this point in time. Um, but again, that's kind of where we, where we started uh, off just in that discourse, again, going back and forth, arguing about politics to whatever extent that we could. And here we are now. Yeah, to fill in a little bit of the timeline after that, Gavin and I were both pretty active writers in like high school. Uh, we were both kind of like really obsessed with movies. So we were both like extremely like, you know, plugged into like the film world. You know, Gavin's probably one of the most well uh, watched uh you know like if you want to talk about like louis benwell and like you know new surrealism and like all this kind of shit like gavin's your guy so uh you know he started his journalism uh doing more of that and, and I, um you know we both wrote about politics in high school uh i ended up going to film school for a brief period of time dropping out it was a whole disaster uh went to business school got really really disillusioned with capitalism uh, dropped out of business school completely, started this like Casey restaurant, whatever magazine where we dabbled in politics. It was called Milk Mag. It was a terrible name. Nobody ever really read it. Um, and then after that, it was a while longer. We were trying to, uh, we had the idea of taking a sprinter van around the country and talking to people and, uh, you know, kind of putting the mic in the hands of the people following around campaigns. Uh, so we came up with the idea for the Vanguard. Uh, relaunched the vanguard.blog, uh, which for a while was just me and Gavin shouting into the void about our political opinions. Uh, it was about May of uh, 2020. On a spur, we ended up interviewing Howie Hawkins. That's how the Vanguard podcast started. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah and, yeah. and just to fill in one more gap there, I will mention the fact that uh, as Zach referenced, we have a sprinter van and, and we want to travel around the country kind of making short documentaries. And that's where, you know, Zach came up with the name Vanguard, obviously uh, relating to the van, but also the 
the the term Vanguard and Vanguardism. Uh, and, and then COVID hit. Um, so about a year ago, when we were about to really take to the streets and, and get this project off the ground, obviously, you know, lockdown started in this crazy, um, you know, new era that we're all in. Uh, so that's, that's why we did start the YouTube channel. And since then, we've been doing streams and, and interviews with candidates and stuff like that, um, kind of forsaking for now our original plans. But there is exciting news in that regard um, coming in the future. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So first of all, I love your podcast. So you guys do leftist news commentary. Uh, When would you say that you first became progressive? 2015, like senior year, junior year of high school, probably. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, I would say that's accurate, too. And again, uh, throughout my high school years, or for the most part of my high school years, you know, Obama was still in office and, and everyone was kind of like, well, you know, it looks like Hillary Clinton's going to be the next, you know, nominee. And, and at the time, I, I was relatively plugged into politics, but not super. And I was just like, you know, I guess it's inevitable that Hillary Clinton's going to be the next president. And I guess that's, you know, better than some Republican, right? Right. You know, everyone was kind of just lazy, you know, thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, Mr. Bernie Sanders entered the picture and I, I shit you not, up until that point in history, I didn't even know that it was possible for someone to run for president and gain popularity and gain clout on a platform like Bernie Sanders. Um, the stuff he was talking about, uh, I, I felt those values, but I never in my lifetime expected to see them reflected in a you know candidate that actually had a chance of viability in an election. Um, so that was a big moment for me, as it was for many people. Uh, you know, No longer the left was just this fringe element where you kind of had to, you know, be like, I'm a, I'm a leftist, but I still have to vote Democrat. Now, all of a sudden we had an actual candidate who was repping those values, who was saying the things that we were thinking and taking on the political establishment in a way that just was not being done by any of his competitors. And especially in the 2016 election, because if you remember, there was like Martin O'Malley and Lincoln Chafee, um, but those guys were not really taking on the Democratic establishment. They were just kind of- Martin O'Malley was, when he was was in Maryland, I mean, he was horrible on crime anyway. So terrible, yeah, terrible candidate, but also he just- didn't really position himself as an antagonistic figure to Hillary or the Democratic Party. He was just kind of another Democrat. Bernie, um, you know, was very explicit about taking on the Democratic Party, about a political revolution. And, you know, for me, I was just, even before it became viable, I just remember when people started rumbling about this guy named Bernie Sanders and that there was an actually a, a politician in this race that was a real labor Democrat, that wasn't a neoliberal. And I was just like, this is this is crazy. We have to seize this opportunity. We have to um, make sure this happens. And I remember my first like real political experience, so to speak, was at a Bernie rally. And I, and I was blown away by the energy. I was blown away by what I saw there about the comrades that in the city of Kansas City, which is not thought of as a hub of leftism at all, you know, I was surrounded by working class people, young people, old people of all different races, contrary to the narratives about Bernie bros all looking like me. Uh, you know, I was surrounded by the most diverse crowd I'd ever seen in my life and, and all working class people, people that I could tell were there for real reasons, um, not just because they wanted uh, to virtue signal or be part of uh, some movement to make themselves feel better. No, they cared about these issues and I wanted to be part of that. So I, I think it was it was just such a big moment for a lot of people and especially young people. Yeah, and if I can just jump in on top of that, I think one of the things that uh, you know maybe goes missed because, and, and you know, not that Gavin and I speak for Gen Z, I think you know we even argued at one point if we were even a part of Gen Z, which by definition we are, but by you know standards, you know nobody ever really feels like the whatever, right? But <laughs> the, I think one of the things that's constantly missed about 
the uh, progression for a lot of people that, you know, um, you know, and especially for people to have been reached all the way in the middle of America, probably the last place in the world you would expect to find like, you know, two ardent leftists. Um, but yet it, it's new media, right? And, and the, the kind of work that Gavin and I have now decided to pursue and that you are obviously pursuing yourself, uh, and, and that's providing uh, opportunities for people to see these uh, alternate perspectives in a way that's free and accessible to large communities. And so, I mean, I know uh, Gavin and I, uh, personally, uh, our first introduction to the like kind of counter culture uh, you know, thought, lines of thinking, which is really what leftist was until it became really popularized by Bernie Sanders and, and has grown in, um, you know, its mainstream acceptability ever since then. But, uh, you know, Gavin and I were both kind of uh, products of rebelling against that ultra conservative kind of ethos of the of the, uh, you know, environment that we grew up in. So Gavin and I were both, uh, you know, kind of interested in, in a lot of YouTubers like uh, Kyle Kalinske and, uh, you know, he was part of the new atheist movement. Gavin and I were also both, you know, really rebelled against the idea of like Christian identity at a young age. And, you know, part of our identity was that we were both outsiders because we were, you know, you know secular dudes, right? We, neither of us were super into religion. Um, and, and I think one of the things that people miss a lot is how that kind of uh, bifurcated into two really interesting subsects of the YouTube internet media space. And Michael Brooks, who tragically passed away, actually wrote an interesting book about uh, one half of that uh, phenomenon, uh, which was the intellectual dark web, people like uh, Sam Harris and, uh, you know, Christopher, you know, the legacy of like Christopher Hitchens kind of remaining in these, uh, you know, new uh, Jordan Peterson kind of figures uh, where there are these like right wing uh, kind of uh, figures that were a part of the new atheist movement. And then you also have the secular talks and these uh, left-wingers that also kind of graduated from the new atheist movement. And obviously Gavin and I were, uh, you know, more compelled by the arguments made by the left. Um, but yeah, that, that would be the other, uh, I guess, part of my, uh, you know, emergence as a, as a lefty thinker. Yeah, um, I know I, I went to um, Bernie's rally here in Boston and there was like over 10,000 people there. Um, even Bernie was surprised. He was like, oh my God, it's a lot of people like out 2016? here. 2016? Huh? 2016? 2016? Uh, last year. Okay, uh, gotcha. 2020. Gotcha. Yeah, it was, this Were was actually in... right before COVID. And like right after that rally, they shut us down like at work and sent us all home. So it was, I felt like the energy kind of started to die at that point because we couldn't really go out and like meet with people and stuff like that. But, you know, Biden came to to Boston, too. He didn't have anywhere near 10,000 people. And yet and yet he somehow like managed to win Massachusetts. So I don't know what happened there. I do want to ask you guys some questions about some of the political issues that are going on right now. So the stimulus package. Um, I personally and some people are going to be mad at me for this. That's cool. But I personally don't feel like it went far enough. Um, what do you guys feel about yeah, that? Yeah, well, Gavin and I sure shit aren't going to be mad at you for that. Uh, uh, yeah, no, obviously. Uh, uh, and I'll just make one quick point and then pass it off to Gavin. Uh, obviously, the the idea that direct stimulus is something that's necessary uh, is it, not something that I think Gavin and I would dispute for a second. Uh, we think the payments should have been more robust. We think they should have been recurring. Um, but we also think that this was a missed opportunity to start imposing, uh, or I guess I'll speak for myself, I think it was a missed opportunity to um, you know, pursue more structural change. Uh, so this is a lot of Band-Aid solutions. Yes, of course, people needed $1,400. They needed $14,000, right? How are people supposed to crawl out of this debt and then stimulate the economy and provide their for their family, all these things? 
you know, had we been receiving retroactive checks, like a lot of people have talked about, it would have been something a lot closer to $14,000, right? And of course we can afford it. Uh, in just this May, we were pump, uh, the, the New York Federal Reserve was pumping a trillion dollars a day uh, into, the, into Wall Street, right? A trillion dollars a day from the New York Federal Reserve. Think about that. Uh, $60 billion will pay for uh, fucking universal college. So just to give you some perspective, uh, we could have done a lot more uh, fundamental change uh like for people listening and if you think it went far enough it's just your, your your scope of what's possible needs to be expanded i would say or i would argue i would argue that as well and um something i've been thinking about a little bit recently is fdr and i was kind of thinking that in these terms i'm like what if a year or two into the Great Depression, instead of doing anything about it or passing a new deal, FDR just gave people $1,400 and a tax credit and basically slapped a Band-Aid on what was um, an undeniable economic catastrophe uh, for this entire country. And now, of course, we have the economic catastrophe, but we also have more people dead than you know World War One and World War Two combined. This is clearly uh, a health apocalypse. And um, for this kind of a stimulus to be introduced again a year or two or a year or so into this pandemic, obviously Biden has recently become president. But um, this is the kind of thing that should have been rolled out immediately and should have been on a monthly basis. Again, not a year in uh, when there's already half a million dead. Um, it's pretty pathetic that it's being um, celebrated by the media as some sort of bold uh, transformational piece of legislation um, when again it really is a temporary fix and albeit a decent you know fix if you were privy to that stimulus money which um, some of us have not been even people that qualified for it are still waiting for their money in some cases so uh, I think that it's really you know it's one it's one thing that you know, I'm sure it obviously did help families that received that money. And I'm sure that people that received it are grateful for it, but it's not going far enough. It's not permanent. And uh, unless, you know, these kind of provisions are reinstated on an annual basis, um, people aren't going to be in any, you know, better place a year from now. Yeah, they uh, sold without... out the only thing that would have helped people down the line, which was minimum wage increase, right? They sold yeah. out the only thing that would have been permanent. And even that wouldn't have kicked in until like 2024 or something exactly. like that. So it's really, it's really crazy. And I think it is really indicative of our propagandistic media. Yeah. I mean, like if you work a minimum wage job and you got the stimulus check, okay, that's a temporary fix, right? It's going to help you right now, but this same time next year, you're going to be right back where you are now. And I, I think that's what people don't understand. It's like, this is not a long-term solution. We need to fix the way things are done like in our economy. We need to fix the minimum wage. And I wanted to ask you guys about that as well. So eight Dems voted against $15 minimum wage. I personally feel like Democrats are not being aggressive. Like, how do you guys feel about that? Well, I mean, I think it's disgraceful for one, the fact that eight Democrats defected and that Chuck Schumer essentially uh, didn't play more hardball and, and really use the bully pulpit to try to get those senators in line. I mean, I, whatever use he has was proven to be um, extremely uh, lacking in, in that instance, because if you can't whip those senators into place on a 
provision, which, you know, the Democratic majority was won on. Again, this was a promise that not only Joe Biden, but those senators touted uh, as a reason why people should cast their vote. Um, they've essentially betrayed the American people that need that money the most. And despite the fact that they're saying they're now going to kick it down the road and, and deal with it in an upcoming piece of legislation, we all know that that's bullshit. This was their one opportunity to really seize um, the political moment. And again, uh, what if we lose the House? What if they lose the Senate? Um, you think a Republican is ever going to allow that to happen? Absolutely not. There's no way in hell. Um, so basically, I think it's a complete abdication of their promised responsibilities. And yeah, I, I think it's I think it's outrageous, too, that especially people like AOC pointed to the $15 an hour as a fight that was, quote unquote, winnable and a fight that, you know, could be pursued um, instead of instead of uh, a force the vote style, you know, attempt to get Medicare for all up for a vote. Uh, she pointed to force or a $15 minimum wage as a more viable or doable option. Uh, now we see that, you know, her own party and the Republican Party obviously killed that. But no one really even said anything. You know, there was like, she didn't even fight days. for it. Yeah. And, and no one was really truly called out besides Kristen Cinema, who of course kind of screwed herself over by being way too performative about it and wearing a Lululemon bag and bringing cake and just generally being um, insane and cruel and horrible. Uh, but there's no reason those other senators should be off the hook. And I see, uh, you know, in the absence of a progressive majority in Congress, I think the only real use that people like AOC can bring is is exposing the ones that are, you know, setting the party back. Why not, uh, you know, never shut up about those eight senators and, and never let them live that down and remind people over and over again uh, about the violence being enabled and, um by the by those people and by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but also the Democratic Party. Uh, so I think it's pretty outrageous, the lack of criticism we've seen from the progressive flank, who, again, has promised us that this is an issue that they will fight for and that is achievable. Well, yeah. And I think it just goes on to the fact that this is the this is the, the there's, you know, the uh, Chris, uh, what's his name? Chris Coons, uh, J Joe Manchin, uh, you know, Kirsten Cinema, all these people that, you know, both Delaware fucking senators where the president's from and he claims he wants $15 minimum wage to pass. Both Delaware senators don't vote for it. So it's so obvious that this is theatrics, right? This is performative at best. And and the thing is, is, is the reason that this doesn't get addressed, the reason it doesn't get called out is because those people are doing their job. The job of Joe Manchin is to make render the Democratic Party completely impotent at passing any uh, any uh, policy that the that the um, a donor class doesn't want. And and, you know, they're starting to tease things like uh, filibuster reform, oh, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, that seems to be more of a carrot on a stick. Right. Until I start to see the wheels actually moving on filibuster reform, uh, I don't want to hear any of it. And what I imagine is going to be is that's going to be some sort of like goal in the future for much of the Biden presidency. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's something that they heavily lean on around midterms. It's like, get us power one more time in the midterms and we're going to lean on the filibuster like that. Don't get me wrong. That is going to happen. So the, the thing that the only real frustration that I have is with the people like AOC, the people like uh you know, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, right? Uh, my frustration with them is the fact that, you know, they said they were going to call out the theatrics. They said they were going to call out all this performative bullshit. And they said that they were going to make meaningful change for the American people. And at every single opportunity, they've had any opportunity to leverage their power at all at any moment to actually get something done. That's not going to be dead on arrival in the Senate. To, that's going to actually pass 
they, they've refused to utilize that power. They refuse to hold up Nancy Pelosi. They refuse to fight for the $15 minimum wage. And they refuse to call out Joe Biden when he does things that um, deserve to be called out quite simply because they're afraid of the media backlash and they want to play the game. And, you know, it, it, we reacted to a Chris Hedges point. You know, he said they, they you know, they've been uh, basically rendered completely ineffective and uh, almost impotent, right? They're, they're, they've been bought. They've, been, they've decided that their career in Congress is worth more than passing any meaningful legislation because if it's not me, it's gonna be somebody that's worse. And that's that self-serving uh, kind of- uh, uh, Career think? Career thinking that, that is so pervasive and, and it, it's, it, we call it swamp think on the podcast, right? It's like, it, it, you know, it, and it's so pervasive that if you go to Washington and you steep in the swamp, it's going to it's going to infect your thinking, and that seems to have happened to every single squad member. Yeah, and I think the latest uh, occasion of this happening was one that we talked about on our podcast yesterday, which not a single peep from a single squad member about Joe Biden essentially unilaterally deciding to continue the war on cannabis. Um, meanwhile, they tweet 24-7 about stopping white supremacy, uh, but apparently they sh can't call out the war on drugs, which is white supremacy codified into law and which has been violently, viciously enforced on marginalized communities of color. Uh, so again, I think there's a real disconnect there and a refusal to reckon with the role of the current Democrats and currently in office and their role in architecting where we are now, uh, the situation that the squad ran in opposition to. Exactly. Um, so the squad, in reference to that, they didn't force the vote for Medicare for all, like during a pandemic. And my thing was kind of like, if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do what else needs to happen for you to push for this? So I think like when, when I think back like Justice Democrats, I think, you know, in theory, it sounds like a good idea, right? Like, let's get young progressive people to run as Democrats, get into, you know, the House, the Senate, but to get them to push progressive policies, right? But then they got there and they're not doing it. It, it's, it, it kind of makes me think like, I'm like, what was the point? Well, yeah, that's what we're all thinking. What the fuck was the point, right? What were the countless hours, the, the all the money spent, all the all of the effort and energy that thousands of, you know, if not hundreds of thousands of individuals that, you know, uh, painstakingly work to get these people into office uh, because of their promises, like the one AOC gave, I would rather be a one-term congressperson. Really? Because you're not acting like a one-term congressperson. You just told us about how you need to position yourself for a committee seat, and that's why you couldn't force the vote, and then you didn't get the committee seat, and then you didn't even do anything about $15 an hour because you're already thinking about your next committee seat. You're already thinking about next election because you're not following the, 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 uh, the agenda that you set for yourself. You know, you said, of course, it's going to be an uphill battle. That's why I'm going to sit outside of Nancy Pelosi's office and protest until she does bring attention to the Green New Deal, until there is a floor vote. Where is that energy now? It, it, you know, it, they, they've been they've become powerless and it's because they want to survive in a cruel and corrupt system. Of course, in her heart of hearts, if she could wave a wand, AOC would uh, give people Medicare for all. But at the end of the day, she doesn't want to jeopardize not getting Medicare for all uh, and moving towards that goal and then losing her position and her power and essentially being vilified by uh, the mainstream media, right? It's the same uh, sickness uh, that impacted the Bernie's uh, 
campaign in 2020, right? It was why it wasn't as inspiring as the 2016 run because he refused to call out Joe Biden like he was willing to call out Hillary Clinton. He refused to say Joe Biden is part of the corruption. And he went so far as to uh, condemn his own surrogate, Zephyr Teachout, who correctly identified Joe Biden as corrupt. He even reprimanded her. So it was all of these kinds of things that happened if you submit to the line of thinking that the Democratic Party and the media establishment is the arbiter of ethics and morality, you have to move completely beyond that if you want to have any success in electoral politics, because you have to be willing to walk through the uh, walls of Congress after the New York Times has called you uh, a, a fucking misogynist, uh, the Washington Post has called you an anti-Semite, everybody tells you that you hate America, uh, you, you hate every group of subsect people, uh, you know, they're going to do everything to tear you down. And that's the model that the Democratic Party has chosen to go through. Of course, they could, they, you know, they used to, they hate freedom, like whatever they want to use as the model of tearing down an insurgent, an insurgent candidate. They're going to vilify you. They're going to tear you down. They're going to uh, make it a character assassination. You have to be completely above that and immune to that. You have to take the Ralph Nader approach where you just have to tune it out. You have to say, I don't give a fuck what you think. This is what I think is ethically correct. And I'm going to pursue this option. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. And, and uh, oh, if you wanted to comment on that, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say no. I, I agree. Definitely. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I remember as someone who's been, you know, around in this movement for a while and especially has been occupying the bread tube space for a while as far as my own watching habits. I very distinctly remember when Justice Democrats was formed by Kyle Kalinske and Jenk Uger and some other um, activists. And, and I remember it very explicitly being sold to us as a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. And I guess my only comment is that I have yet to see any of the Justice Democrats act hostile. Wait, you don't think defending Neera Tandon's nomination is a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party? I'm, I'm still waiting for that hostility. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I just don't think it's working. Like, I, again, like in it's theory, not. I thought it was a good idea, but I just, I just don't think it's working. Um, it hasn't worked hasn't shown any signs of working in fact it feels like we've we've moved in the wrong direction almost like like i don't know if you i don't know if you would uh, agree with this but do you feel more or less inspired now than you did two uh you know two years ago to yeah me, I, will, I, feel, I feel less inspired like, i will say the only thing i'll say in that regard is that i think bernie losing had a lot to do with that too but sure yeah i do agree yeah and with bernie in congress i do think the squad members would be doing more i mean obviously they're kind of been rendered incomp or impotent by you mean uh, if bernie neoliberal. in the white house yeah sorry what i say congress i was like he is yeah, yeah. In congress yeah yeah if bernie was if bernie had won the democratic nomination and, and actually become the president uh I, I do think the squad members would obviously be a lot more active and and vocal right now i think they're in a you know admittedly a little bit awkward position i just personally would not respond to it the same way i think they're responding to it uh as as careerists instead of activists essentially yeah yeah yeah, definitely. Um, do you guys think we need a third party and a third party that is other than like the Green Party, a third party that can actually like win? And if so, what do you think that would look like? Yeah, so this is something that we've been grappling with on our podcast a lot, right? Uh, because, you know, Gavin, I, like, uh, we, I, I mean, we may slightly disagree between this, but I, I mean, for the most part, like I'll vote for fucking anybody as long as their policy is comes correct. Right. I don't care if I don't personally care if you run as a Democrat, as long as your policy is correct. And I have faith in you and, 
uh, you know, do I think the Democratic Party will sabotage you and do everything they can to keep you from getting elective if you're a principled person and you support the policies that I believe in, of course. But if for whatever reason, you know, you're on the chopping block or you're on the voting block and, you know, I can vote for you, I think that's great. I'm not going to be like, I'm too principled to vote for a Democrat. I'll vote for the grilled cheese sandwich party. Uh, I don't care as long as they, you know, are moving the principles and the policy initiatives that I believe in forward. Uh, that being said, you know, I also don't have a problem with the Green Party, right? If the Green Party, if the Green Party has done a lot of work, and this is something that Gavin can maybe speak to better than I can uh, as a as a two-time Green Party voter, but the Green Party has done a lot of work for ballot access. And I think that a lot of times people on the left are quick to write that off because they haven't necessarily made a lot of the decisions that, you know, uh, uh, people like us would make, right? I, I, like, you know, I'll, I'll just say, I thought that they're, I, I wasn't super happy with the way that they ran the 2020 election, right? Um, I think that they could have uh, done a lot better. Uh, so there are obviously potential, there are plenty of criticisms of the Green Party, but the fact of the matter is, is why start from scratch when we agree with the Green Party on 95% of shit, right? So uh, I think that there does need to be a third party movement. Obviously, Gavin and I have recently done a lot of uh, coverage on the movement for a people's party. Uh, you know, some disappointments that they've had, uh, that we've had with their leadership, lack of transparency, lack of any kind of democracy, lack of any kind of, uh, you know, um, response from leadership to questioning so those are all kinds of red flags for me so i'm not super thrilled by the the concept of pushing for the mpp right now either um though i i mean it, if they were to finally uh you know address uh, either me gavin the other reporters that have reached out to them with concerns um we would be more than willing to listen to them and, and perhaps uh you know support a candidate that they uh got behind but at this point, I, I don't know. It seems like we, I mean, the, the, the groups that I'm most inspired by are going to be the socialist alternatives, kind of smaller groups, um, you know, which obviously ran Shama Sawant um, in city council. And, you know, Gavin, I think, has correctly identified her as one of the most effective politicians in America. Uh, but Gavin, do you want to jump in? Yeah, yeah, I would generally echo what you've said. Uh, I agree about the Green Party um, having some disappointing results up to this point. But They've done better than any other leftist third party up to this point. I mean, at least they have something to show for themselves. And I think it is downright idiotic, if not downright suicidal, um, to not understand the necessity of, if not fully merging with the Green Party, at least collaborating with the Green Party. And that's one thing that's kind of uh, made me take MPP less seriously, uh, is when I came to realize that they had no interest seemingly in collaborating with the Green Party um, or trying to, uh, you know, Fuse their visions of uh, smashing the duopoly so that you know things like ballot access actually could be achieved. Again, it's not you know the sexiest aspect of organizing, but getting on the ballot and getting those signatures and putting in that groundwork is very essential uh, as a foundation. And the Green Party has done a lot of that work over their you know twenty or whatever years of existence. Um, so again, I, I think that you know if we're going to be serious about third parties and, and mounting a third party challenge uh, i think the first part of that conversation is how do we merge all of the existing third party efforts into one um you know leftist leftist organizing third party uh and that's something that zach and i were talking about a little bit over the summer optimistically hoping that mpp would go that route after their very inspiring convention you know i, I said that that convention single-handedly brought more attention to the third party cause than anything the Green Party has done since Ralph Nader. Uh, and I think that's true. And that's why I was excited about MPP is because they seemingly did understand the power of, you know, charismatic people and 
and you know how to reach more and more people via social media. They seemingly understood uh, that kind of digital organizing. But again, it's been really disappointing to me to see them refuse the Green Party's kind of invitation to collaborate. And now, obviously, with everything else we've seen, it's just kind of spiraled out of control to the point where it's almost beyond repair, in my opinion. I agree. Um, I have one more question for you guys, also in reference to third party. How do we convince people that they can vote third party and that they don't have to pick Democrat or Republican? Because people have told me this for years, like we only have two choices, but we, we don't only have two choices. How do we get people to get that in their head that like they can vote for a third party? Yeah, well, so I think that one of the critical things to do first is understanding that there are a lot of structural difficulties to building a third party movement and a third party candidate. Ballot access is much more difficult uh, if you're a third party and there's going to be a massive effort by the Democrats and Republicans to stamp out your ballot access. We saw that again. That was something the Green Party grappled with. Uh, you, you actually see that a lot more with the Democrats. Uh, the Republicans just tend to kind of leave the Libertarian Party alone, which I always observe is really interesting because they've actually been the party that's most impacted by Libertarians. Uh, if you, uh, uh, who, uh, uh, what's his name, ran in uh, again, uh, 92, Ross Perot, uh, Ross Perot uh, mm -hmm. you know, he pulled uh, a massive amount uh, and, and essentially had he not run in all of, if you want to do the voter math like they always do, had he not run, uh, George H.W. Bush would have gotten elected for a second term. We'd have likely never had President Clinton. Uh, history would have been different. Uh, Ross Perot actually ran again uh, when when Clinton got reelected. Again, pulled a large amount of the vote. The Republican Party has still seemingly never been as vicious towards you know the Libertarian Party, these third parties, as the Democrats who actively undermine and work to pass legislation like HR one, which makes it more difficult for public financing to go to parties like Green parties. Uh, so I don't want to uh, dismiss completely a lot of the uh, concerns that people have when they say we do live in a two-party system. That's what they're referring to correctly, I think, when they say that, is the fact that it has been uh, very much uh, designed so that only two parties can be affected, and those two parties can be entirely controlled by the corporate oligarchy. Um, but yeah, I'll pass the rest of the question over to Gavin. Yeah, I guess what I would say about that, and I mean, I don't really know if I do have a great answer as far as convincing people uh, as, a, as to the merits of third-party voting, because uh, as Zach referenced, you know, I voted for Jill Stein, I voted for Howie Hawkins, and obviously those people did not become president. There are very few instances where you can point to uh, of successful third-party candidacies. So again, if you're just trying to make a logical case to someone as to why they should uh, vote third party, it, you can run into those obstacles. For me, it's always been more of a moral decision, more of a voting my conscious type decision. Uh, I mean, for the same reason most people People would not want to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I simply couldn't bring myself to vote for Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or fill in the name with whatever neoliberal ghoul that's going to carry out war crimes abroad and, you know, crimes against humanity domestically. Um, that's not something I feel comfortable for. And I guess the answer to your question would just be education, because that's what it's taken for me to get to that point. Uh, again, when I was back in high school, just absorbing um, the mainstream media, uh, I was complacent voting for the likes of uh, Barack Obama, not that I was even of voting age, but I, I would have been comfortable voting for Hillary Clinton. It wasn't until um, you know, I did get into the Bernie movement and started to educate myself as to the realities of Democratic Party policy domestically and abroad, uh, which I personally made the decision not to participate any longer, uh, which again, um, you can have a discussion about the effectiveness of it. But for me, it's kind of like my decision not to eat meat. Like, I don't care how effective it is. It's not something I can participate in ethically. 
Yeah. And just, I guess if I was going to say one point as far as if I was like, and you know, that, like who, who the fuck am I to make this point? Right. Because I spent the entire lead up to the election being the counterbalance to Gavin's position of voting <laughs> third party. I actually did vote for Joe Biden with the shit fucking gritted teeth. Anyway, it was not something that I'm proud of and it's not something that I like fucking celebrated, but I did do it just, you know, essentially uh, considering it like a, a like a vote against Donald Trump. Right. Which, of course, yeah, you know, people can slaughter me in the comment section and be like, I'm part of the problem and I'm, you know, carrying water for the establishment and all that shit. Uh, but essentially, I think that um, in order to, uh, you know, like I said, like Gavin said, he made his decision morally. And I think that essentially the change is going to have to happen where you can uh, offer people something where they think that the green part or the, the third party, whoever it is, can be a winning party. Because the fact of the matter is, is people vote for they, they will only vote for the, in large pools of people. Right. They're going to vote for the person that they think is going to win. Right. And, and it's like, you know, um, I've been reading a lot of old Matt Taibbi recently for a project that we're working on. And I've been reading a lot of his coverage of like the uh, 04 election. And it kind of reminds me of the phenomenon of like why people didn't get behind Dennis Kucinich and they would get behind Dean instead, right? It was like a lot a lot of people believed in what Dennis Kucinich was saying. I mean, th this is a dude that was basically uh, arguing for Bernie Sanders platform in like 2004, right? He was talking about giving everybody Medicare. He was talking about providing people with uh, you know, a, a living wage with uh, you know expanding unions of, uh, uh, you know, he was against the Iraq war. I mean, th this is a guy that, uh, you know, was really um, representing, but it was, there was no conversation that he could have any chance at winning. So all reasonable people who may have even had those kinds of beliefs were then funneled into the Howard Dean. And then of course he had the screen tape where it was all a meltdown from there in a wash. But, but I, I think that it, it just demonstrates that even if people believe morally in their heart of hearts, that this one candidate is offering something, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be convinced that they have to go with the person who's going to win because uh, you have to give people something. So um, I guess at that point, it just comes down to, uh, you, you have to change the way that people are, are, are willing to negotiate, right? It, it, you have to say, you know, um, and, and that's hard, right? Uh, because we've been conditioned for so long. It's kind of like the exact analysis or um, difference that people are having over the stimulus check. Is it worth risking not getting anything or is it worth risking actually resolving this issue so that we don't have to perpetually deal with this um, you know, problem and, 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 you know, we can actually make strides for the working class in this country. So uh, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it's just doing the work and educating people and, and providing instances where you can show something successful happen. So, you know, running independent, if you're able in your district as a, as a representative, you know, Gavin and I fondly talk about the uh, Jesse Ventura run for governor in 1998 uh, for Minnesota, right. As an example of somebody who can be a, uh, a raw communicator with the public represent the the will of the people and and true populism and and actually get to a high level of office uh doing right. so and i think if if we'd had uh, another jesse ventura figure now uh who was able to say reach the governorship somewhere and then say i am now joining the green party and i will always run as a green party person or i will always run as the ham and cheese sandwich party person um, now we have a ham and cheese candidate in power. I ran as an independent. Now I'm a ham and cheese guy. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Which is why it was so maddening to see the Green Party not accept Mr. Ventura with open arms when he when he apparently wanted to be their nominee in 2020. Uh, again, like you were saying, people usually don't vote third party because they don't think there is a reason to vote for third party. There's no realistic outcome of it. So they're like, why would I waste my time? 
uh, in a character like Ventura, you're actually giving people a viable option, someone they could potentially compete on a debate stage and and actually you know make the media cover them and, and get on get in headlines and and all that stuff that you need um, to mount a successful candidacy. So again, I, I think that there's a lot of there is some blame to go you know to the strategic thinking of, of groups like the Green Party, which again apparently aren't actually interested in winning, which is interesting. <laughs> All right. Well said. Guys, thanks so much for coming on today. I'll be sure to put the link to the Vanguard podcast in the description below. And thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We really appreciated the opportunity. And like I said, uh, you're more than welcome to hop on our channel at any point to continue this conversation. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.